0: Hello. You have discovered The Felon File, formerly known as The 542 and The Blue Podcast. Felonfile.com is a podcast exploration and discussion of law enforcement, history, issues, and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains and elsewhere. Felon File is hosted by Scott Lunsford, retired police detective, sergeant, author and researcher. The Shade of Blue Stories for Felon File Today Today's discussion and shade of blue story is a homicide from 1939 Madison County, North Carolina. Who killed the hermit of Spring Creek and why? Why were the offenders tried twice? Listen and find out. Background music. Hard-boiled hosted by Purple Planet. Scott. You're online.
1: Greetings and welcome back to Felony File. As Victoria said, we're a podcast, exploration, discussion of law enforcement, history involving law enforcement issues, incidents that occurred in the Appalachian Mountains and elsewhere. By the way, thank you Victoria for starting us out and thank you of course to the people that are downloading this and listening to it who are communicating back with good suggestions. We received a wonderful email suggestion from a listener who pointed us in the directions of a, another story that we're going to. We're still doing the research on, and it's going to be fantastic. So please keep sending in your suggestions and touching base with us through the website felonyfile.com, or just simply email us straight to felonyfile. At gmail.com. We're easy to find. Now, today's shade of blue story again, as Victoria said, we're looking at 1939. 1939 in Madison County, North Carolina, the mountain areas of western North Carolina. If you know Madison County, North Carolina, you may be familiar with Spring Creek. Spring Creek is a tributary uh, to the French Broad River in Madison County. It's about 17 miles long and it runs mostly through the Pisgah National Forest. It joins the French Broad River in Hot Springs, North Carolina, and the creek passes through the communities of Trust, Luck, and Joe. That's right, the community of Joe. And of course the Spring Creek community that is there is named after the waterway. Now the Spring Creek community itself is an unincorporated community in the county of Madison, North Carolina in the United States. It's located along North Carolina Highway 209 north of Trust and north of Luck and as I said it's named for the actual stream, Spring Creek, that runs next to Highway 209. The community itself is located at an altitude of 2,103 feet above sea level that's uh, 641 meters to our metric listening audience. Now the rural area is mostly farms and has a population of about 890 and that's today. There was a few people less than that back in 1939. Now looking at 1939 well the wheat penny was in circulation. That same penny today in average condition is worth to a collector around 30 cents. The New York World's Fair was ongoing at the time and the Hermit of Spring Creek was murdered that year as well. Now the Hermit of Spring Creek we're speaking about is not to be confused with Peter the Hermit whose name is used in reference to Peter's Rock. It's a huge stone structure overhanging wagon trail the Buncombe turnpike also in Madison County it's a very huge mass of rock now Peter was said to be a legendary hermit who he made his home at the at this huge piece of rock uh, way before the Revolutionary War but that's not who we're talking about apologize for the side trip our 1939 hermit is mr. William Ledford he lived in a shack or a cabin surrounded by three ten-foot tall barbed wire fences with three large metal gates. The fact that he liked to be by himself, didn't care for a lot of people or a lot of visitors, was probably the reason he was referred to as the hermit of Spring Creek. In reality Ledford was mostly just a man who wanted to keep to himself, wanted to be left alone but he really wasn't in some self-imposed total isolation he was semi-friendly to his neighbors who knew he was known at church and various locations around the area and it wasn't that uncommon for him to have some visitors he just liked being left alone and really who doesn't? Ledford's only sibling his sister Sophia Frana Ledford Coward one Sunday passed by her brother's place on her way to church. The sister knew her brother's preferences to be left alone and going past his place on the way to church she saw that one of the gates on his fence line was standing wide open. Now knowing this to be unusual and possibly a way his livestock could get out, she knew something was wrong because he never left the gates open. Stopping and getting no response to calling his name from outside the house, she did finally enter and located her brother in the kitchen dead. No phone or other way to contact anyone about the tragic discovery, the sister had to drive to the closest location she knew of to call for help. This was the farm of Mr. Robert Cockle. Cockle lived about five miles up the road from Mr. Ledford. Now, he reported the sister discovery to the sheriff, and the sheriff rounded up a couple of deputies and went to investigate. Now, this happened on a Sunday. Sheriff Guy English arrived at Ledford's cabin and found what appeared to him that Ledford had been beaten with several pieces of firewood. These were close to the body, and they had red stains on them that were, to the sheriff, obviously blood. He determined that the killers, or killer, had broke through a window to gain entry to Ledford's cabin. There was quite a bit of blood splattered about the crime scene, and he deduced that the killer, or killers, would also have a good deal of blood on them from the victim as well, once he located them. Further investigation, the sheriff ended up finding a gray hat. Uh, Ledford's sister examined the hat and said it did not belong to her brother so this was one piece of evidence. The body had been left in the kitchen his hand and feet had been tied up and the sheriff also discovered a white handkerchief with lace trim on it outside of the cabin. The victim was not known to have entertained or received any one of the female's persuasion other than his sister and that was very rare too in itself. Also discovered was a smoking pipe that was determined not to belong to Mr. Ledford. Apparently Mr. Ledford didn't smoke a pipe. The sheriff worked out that the pipe ended up belonging to a Mr. Al Jones who ended up also living up the road. He was a bachelor sharecropping farmer and Jones worked and lived on property that was owned by Mr. Ledford. The sheriff discovered that Jones had in fact visited the house previously and had forgotten his pipe there, but he had not killed Ledford having a good alibi the day that the sheriff determined Ledford was killed. When he learned of the murder of course Jones was concerned that the sheriff would find his pipe and accused him of being a suspect so he contacted the sheriff first. While interviewing Jones the sheriff discovered that he did end up having a large ten dollar bill in his possession in 1939 a ten dollar bill was noticeably larger than a regular dollar bill and a little harder to come by and it was very unusual for Mr. Jones apparently to have one in his possession now the conversation turned to this ten dollar bill that Jones had and how Jones had come to get it, the sheriff thinking that it might possibly be part of the missing money that was determined to have been stolen from Mr. Ledford. Jones told the sheriff that he had won the bill in a coin toss with two brothers in a cafe in Waynesville, a neighboring county. Now this is where and this was after the murder had occurred. He did recall though that the two brothers were known locally in the Spring Creek area, and Jones had previously had a conversation with the two about several other people in the community, to include a rather long conversation about Mr. Ledford and rumors of untold amounts of money that the hermit must have hidden about his place. Now, Sheriff English continued his investigation looking for a connection between the two young men who had expressed an unusual amount of interest in the victim and that diner in Waynesville. This line of inquiry took the sheriff to a lady also of the Spring Creek community, Cora Mason. She visited the cafe in Waynesville on a fairly regular basis due to her employment being nearby the sheriff questioned her and she told him about two cousins a Frank Davis and Willard Clements and she was sure these were the two that the sheriff was inquiring about these were the names that Mason had overheard at that particular diner she had also overheard one of them mention a place called Crosby a town just over the mountain in Tennessee this information sent the sheriff in the direction of Tennessee when the sheriff went to Crosby looking for these men that Mrs. Mason had indicated to him might be involved no one could tell the sheriff any information about them these two guys were nowhere to be found now if you want to find out anything about a community or somebody in the community you go to the individuals who have a lot of contact with that community when I was a detective one of my best sources of information in Asheville in locating somebody was the cable guy you might not pay your taxes or renew your car tag and insurance but everyone pay their cable bills for fear of having their cable cut Sheriff English did the same thing of course not with a cable guy though he looked up the managers and owners of the local stores the mailman and the town doctor interviewing the physician in the town of Crosby. He was told of two men that sounded very much like who the sheriff was looking for and who had been away for a while and just recently returned to them as the Duckett brothers who in fact were actually first cousins. Now that the sheriff had names to go with the suspects the search was much easier and soon resulted in some arrest. With the assistance of the state of Tennessee law enforcement, the Ducket Cousins were located at a Knoxville, Tennessee tourist camp and arrested. You might equate a tourist camp with a inexpensive travel motel, kind of your Motel 6 type place. Today would be a good example. The two were arrested when interviewed by the sheriff and the Tennessee authorities the two admitted to the murder also located at where they were staying was physical evidence to include money assumed to be from the Ledford break-in and homicide and the clothing the boys were wearing even at that time of the arrest it was still blood-stained and they were still wearing it Now the chase of the two cousins by Sheriff English made for good newspaper selling copy and the press took good advantage of it. Photographs of the evidence and images of the two boys being arrested or in handcuffs being escorted from the train by Sheriff English made for very good copy and of course money-making images for the media. Now the sheriff had done some digging and apparently Mr. Ledford was in fact though he lived very humbly was a very rich man the motive for the murder of course was money the Ducat Boyd's has stolen this from Mr. Ledford in searching Mr. Ledford's cabin with Mr. Ledford being forced to point out the hiding places they first found two hundred dollars then they found two hundred and seventy four dollars continuing to force Mr. Ledford to point out more they found two thousand dollars in some shoes another three thousand five hundred dollars hidden also on the property a search of bank records also showed that Mr. Ledford had about seven thousand dollars at the bank at the time this is a total of thirteen thousand dollars or approximately if you convert it into twenty twenty one dollars uh, $242,315 totally his net worth quite a bit of money even by today's standards the two cousins admitted to the sheriff and his investigators how it all went down that preceding Friday they made their plans to rob Mr. Ledford the two Ducket boys arrived at Ledford's cabin around 730 in the morning that Sunday they had arrived early and watched mr ledford in his in his usual morning routine when ledford went out to milk the cows the two young men broke a window on the opposite side of the house from the barn and climbed through their plan was to ambush the old man when he came into the house and force him to tell them where he had stashed his money when ledford returned the two young men overpowered him tied and gagged him They manhandled the 64-year-old man around the cabin, making him point out his money stashes. When done, they put him in the kitchen, knocking him unconscious with pieces of the firewood. Both of the cousins maintained throughout their confession that they did not attempt to kill Mr. Ledford. They also admitted to robbing another house about a week prior to the murder, taking cash and a pocket watch sheriff charged the two cousins with first-degree murder the Madison County grand jury concurred and a trial in superior court was set up two months later when court started the first thing the defense counsel made a request for separate trials for the two young men uh, this was denied by the court The defense also challenged the jury on the grounds that no women were summoned as jurors and that the juror pool was drawn from only 10 of Madison County's 16 townships. I guess you got to go for what, what you have available. This too was overruled. When this didn't work, the defense entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. Now if you recall in a previous podcast episode that I did titled Just How Crazy is Too Crazy, You know that as a defense is usually a long reach. If you haven't heard that podcast, check it out. It's still online. Now, after opening statements by both prosecution and defense, Sheriff Guy English read the admission of guilt to the court over the vigorous objections of the attorneys for the defense who maintained that the statements were not voluntary and had been obtained under pressure. Physical evidence was also presented and explained by the sheriff as well. Other physical evidence, of course, was the money. This also was objected to by the defense as there was no way to prove, they said, it was the actual stolen money. The firewood was entered in as weapons used in the assault and the killing. Of course, this was objected to as well. All of that was overruled and admitted into evidence this evidence all connected to the statements made to the sheriff all of that was objected to and overruled by the judge oh and not to leave it out evidence was also presented that the hat the gray hat that was found at the crime scene was actually the property of one of the cousins also the white handkerchief was determined to actually belong to one of the cousins who had received it from a young lady after the state rested their case the defense began building their case of uh, mental incompetency what was referred to in the media as mentality illness in the Duckett boys family extending back to their paternal great grandfather which had something to do with grandfather shooting his brother causing a major shootout injuring several other family members really wasn't able to find any documentation of this in newspapers or court records because it sounded very interesting now the defense put eight witnesses on the stand in reference to this defense of insanity in reference to not guilty by insanity one was a Mr. Chapel, who was a school teacher at the Spring Creek School where the boys both had gone to school. This teacher was Doyle Duckett's 7th grade teacher and he testified that the boys' grades at that time were below average but that he was a well-behaved student. Doyle was, was over 20 at this point and it seems a little odd to be putting his seventh grade teacher up on the stand to act as a mentality witness but they did as well as Doyle Duckett's sister and a Miss Thomas who were called to relate incidents that occurred in the past to show to show some mental instability a Mr. Meadows was also placed on the stand by the defense as a character witness. The only character witness called during the trial unless you want to claim the seventh grade teacher was a character witness. After both sides had made their argument before the jury and judge, Judge Pless instructed the jury, or charged the jury, that it might return any of one of four verdicts. Number 1. Guilty of first-degree murder for both of the defendants. Number two guilty as to only one defendant and not guilty for the other and vice versa that's two and three or a verdict of not guilty to both defendants. Those were basically the choices that the judge gave and charged the jury with. The 13-member jury panel having been instructed by the judge left to deliberate the case. Now those of you who are Perry Mason fans may have probably already started talking back to the device that's playing this podcast. Lunsford you idiot. In North Carolina there are only 12 jurors on a capital offense trial. Yes that is true and you are correct. Two hours after being sent in to deliberate Sheriff English went back to check on the jury checking on dinner, food needs, whatever. Uh, The sheriff discovered that the 13th or alternate juror had not been dismissed before the case was given to the jury. Now not being dismissed he had proceeded back with the jury to deliberate with them which as you might have guessed was not a legal thing to do or to have occur. Now when this error was disclosed the defense counsel moved for a mistrial and this was about the only thing that the judge agreed with the def- with the defense on. Judge Pless ordered the extra juror removed from the jury room and the motion for mistrial was discussed by all parties and the judge declared a mistrial. Now what is an alternate juror? The alternate juror is selected in capital cases sometimes they have two so there might be 14 people actually listening to the case they're selected in capital cases to sit through the trial inside the courtroom they hear the same evidence they hear the same statements as the first original 12 people that were chosen they take part in the deliberation only in case one of the first 12 jurors becomes incapacitated, can't be there for whatever reason, and during the course of the trial. Otherwise, the alternate jurors are dismissed before the jury begins their deliberation and they're excused from the courtroom. A Mr. B. Pack ended up being the third wheel in this jury pool at the time. After announcing the mistrial, Judge Pless assumed responsibility fully for the oversight and declared that he would be willing to hold a special term of court to retry the case without any expense to the county. Counsel for both sides and other court officials, including the sheriff, likewise insisted on also taking the blame for the error. Apparently nobody was paying attention. Now the prisoners were remanded back to jail to await a new trial in Madison County Superior Court. Judge Pless had completed his charge at 7.48 p.m. and it was not until 9.30 that the error of the extra juror had been discovered. Sheriff Guy English is reported in the papers as saying the jury had been hopelessly deadlocked when he looked in on them and the case probably would have ended in a mistrial anyway a second trial was held in December there really wasn't too much difference between the two trials except for one factor that probably made a big difference the two young men the ducat cousins were charged at this time and tried on second-degree murder instead of first-degree murder, and they were found guilty on December 2, 1939. Now, Superior Court judge sentenced each of them to 30 years in state prison. In court records the judge termed that the verdict was quote, awful bad, unquote, and said the jurors could easily have found a verdict of a conviction of first-degree murder under the evidence that was presented. Both men were sent to Raleigh Central Prison where they served their time and after serving their time they were released and they returned to the Madison County community checking court records, newspaper files, and other sources and doing some interviews with some of the individuals that still live in Spring Creek that were familiar with the Duckett cousins i found no indication that after these young men had served their time that they got into trouble again apparently both were known for being for being good neighbors and ready to help anybody that might need it doyle duckett ended up passing away in 1993 and his cousin in 2003 and that's our shade of blue story of the Hermit of Spring Creek and the two trials that occurred and the third wheel in the jury box thank you for listening I hope you found it interesting little bit of history and a reminder that justice is something that has to be worked hard at you have we there are certain rules that have to be gone by and you need to follow those rules 12 jurors as opposed to 13. And we won't even get into the concept of the 13 jurors and 13 being an unlucky number. Remember, if you'd like to send us an email or a message, you can contact us through felonfile at gmail.com or go straight to the website felonfile.com. You can also send us a message through that particular website so in the coming weeks until we get back again at 7 o'clock Eastern Standard Time on another Saturday evening remember be safe and be secure wash your hands apparently that's still very important wear the mask where you're supposed to and try to do something nice for somebody if you have got the chance it's really the right thing to do and if more people did it the world would be a better place. Victoria, go ahead and close us out. Bye, y'all.
0: You have been listening to The Felon File Podcast with your host, Scott Lunsford. For more information on this podcast or Scott's books and writings, go to scottlunsfordauthor.com and felonfile.com. Scott can also be contacted at these webpages. This is Victoria your producer. Thank you for listening. 2. 1. End. I almost forgot. If you would like to support the Felon File podcast, please go to buymeacoffee.com backslash file. Here you can buy Scott a cup of coffee or help purchase some of the research material and expenses that it takes to do Felon File. That's buymeacoffee.com backslash Once more thank you for listening.